Today's podcast is brought to you by the Zing platform by Jewelers Mutual Group. Zing puts the industry at your fingertips with an all-in-one dashboard featuring products like JM Shipping Solution, a diamond marketplace powered by IDEX, jewelry appraisal solution, which leverages the expertise of Gemworld, and much more. Get started for free at zing.jewelersmutual.com. Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about watches of Switzerland, Alex and Ani, and marketing innovations. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from LA. I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from very, very hot New York City. It's like 90 today. I was just there. I've been waiting for a year and a half to say this. I was in New York City this last weekend, or actually out in Montauk, but I bookended my visit to Montauk with a night in the city on a Thursday night, and then I closed it out with another night on Sunday here at the end of June. And it was hot, but I loved it. I loved it. I loved it every second of it. The heat felt right. It felt luscious, you know. I I was excited to be back on the East Coast for the first time in ages and to feel the energy on the streets of Manhattan. When you walk around, is it just because you've been there this whole time? It isn't, do you feel the energy? Or I certainly felt it. Maybe because it was also Pride Weekend, so that helped. Yeah, it's definitely much better than it it was. For a while, it was deserted. You know, it was scary. Like when we left, it was a ghost town. You you really felt like you were in a movie. Now it's much better. And, you know, I'd say it seems like every day you see less mass on the street. So it's like 10 to 25% mass. I mean, everybody still has them. And I think people still have them around their neck, but they're not wearing them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reflection of just the confidence people are feeling in the vaccine. And I know New York's one of the most vaccinated states. It felt great. I should also explain why I was in New York. It was for a very fabulous press trip, my very first press trip since the world went to you know what. It was sponsored by Watches of Switzerland, the multi-brand retailer based in the UK, but they've got a great presence here in the US. Two boutiques in the city, one in Soho, another one at Hudson Yards. They've got a Boston store. They've got a Vegas store, and they also own many the very well-known Southeast chain, you know, in Florida and Georgia that does great Rolex business. Well, they all do great Rolex business, which I suspect is why they're doing so well, well enough to have invited a group of lifestyle editors, including myself and their plus ones to Montauk for the weekend to celebrate a new campaign. We stayed at the Surf Lodge, which apparently is the epicenter of every young person's partying dreams. They were debuting a campaign called Anytime, Anywhere. They'd hired a creative director, a talented guy based in Columbus who put together this beautiful three-minute film featuring all these different watches on the wrists of some cool tastemakers, including a surfer, Kai Lenny, who's an ambassador for Tag Heuer, a stunt driver named Riley, whose name I didn't catch, and a few other assorted types doing what they do. And it was shot all over the place. Denali, Alaska. It was shot in Sea Ranch up in the Northern California, Maui, Joshua Tree. And honestly, it was a beautiful film and it felt 
felt like an exciting thing to see this retailer who which really wants to promote this multi-brand platform and anytime anywhere is this new campaign tagline and it's also tied into a new retail concept they just unveiled that is centered on a gorgeous airstream that this creative director found somewhere in Kentucky totally refitted, renovated, kitted out and drove to the Hamptons where it's going to be parked from what I understand through August, um, kind of moving around and it's got watches, it's got Rolexes, it's got an MBNF, it's got Breitling and it's got all these watches that, you know, you can just kind of pull up to whatever cool spot seems to be the hang and open your shingle there. And it was really great. I must say the vibe and the energy and the general enthusiasm was high and it felt very optimistic. As far as COVID, were there any precautions or were people mostly acting like before times? We were helicoptered there and back. So, you know, we were asked to wear masks on the helicopters and in the cars. But, you know, once you got to the hotel, it was super outdoors. Most every window and big doors were open. So it felt very outdoors. And let me tell you, it's also like a super sceny place in the heart of this part of the Hamptons. And young people milling in, standing in line, getting ready there to see the DJ or the band or drink or whatever. And I popped into the enclosed bar at one point to look for the crew that I was with and I couldn't see them. And I just stood there in awe because it really felt like the before times. I mean, people were unmasked at the bar, jumping, singing, really right up against each other. It was something to see, but it made me happy. It made me feel like we've earned this summer. You know, you know, it's interesting because when people stopped traveling, there was all this hope that discretionary dollars would go to jewelry. And that appears to have happened. And I guess the question is now that travel is returning and people are having out having a good time like yourself, will they spend less on jewelry? Will that money shift back to travel because everybody's so starved for a good time. And obviously the other issue is that COVID is not necessarily conquered yet. Certain countries have serious problems. Certain areas of our country have have serious problems. But, you know, for people who are vaccinated and are, and are confident about it, I, I could see some of the money shifting. Yeah, I'm sure that is inevitable. Although I keep thinking, yeah, but people are so excited to be out. And what do they want to do? They want to look their best when they're out because they haven't been out for so long. I felt this way. So in advance of the trip, I went shopping. And I think a lot of those excursions that people make to go shopping in advance of the partying they're going to do will involve jewelry. It's sort of hard to say. I think, sure, those discretionary dollars will be diverted to the air airline tickets and dinner reservations and so on. But there's still room to spend on jewelry and watches. Honestly, the fact that this retailer is doing well enough to host us, I think is a very good sign that they are confident as well and have done well. And obviously the Rolex business has been on fire. I think we've all known that. But other brands too, Breitling's done very well. Clearly Patek Philippe, Audemars Piguet, these sort of the holy trinity of watchmaking, Audemars, Patek and Rolex, but also these other brands. And they're betting big on this. They've got this whole campaign rolling out. They've got this Airstream retail concept going mobile. Definitely in the trade, there's an upbeat mood. I think people are doing very well. I think that big diamond business is apparently on fire. Lab Grown is still doing well and natural diamonds are still doing well. So it's not, there was all this worries that they would cannibalize each other. But right now they're both doing extremely well. So I was talking to somebody, he said, you know, diamond dealers never want to admit that things are going too well because people will think that they have all sorts of money and try to get it out of them. I told you, you know, my grandfather was a diamond dealer. Yes, I did know that and I'd forgotten. And, and apparently he used to say the joke was, you know, he'd say either business was terrible or worse than terrible. 
two choices. But yeah, the mood is really good actually in the industry. And I think people are doing business and, you know, Signet sales are up. Most retail sales are up. There's still problems in the, in the country. I don't think we're completely out of the woods, but I, I think people are ready for this to be over and hopefully it is over and they want to celebrate and they're going to do it in all sorts of ways, whether it's, you know, buying extravagant stuff or going out partying the Hamptons. I feel the optimism. I feel like a lot of people I, I'm reading about are getting into the jewelry business or at least dedicating their platforms to jewelry in a way that makes it seem like the business is very enticing for them because it's obviously they're selling. I'll use one as an example. It's a company called Thread Styling that was founded a few years ago. I want to say it was around 2018. And it's a chat-based platform where you are on their Instagram account. And if you like what you see, whether it's clothing and then jewelry, you click and you're launched into a WhatsApp chat with a personal shopper and they, they source inventory for you. Well, in March, they announced their own dedicated jewelry platform just called Threads Jewelry on Instagram. You know, when I talked to their CMO a few weeks ago, she was very, very pro jewelry and just said it's been it's been a really great business. And I don't want to quote the percentage, but it was something crazy double digit, like insane, crazy improvement in jewelry sales from, from 2019 to 2020 to continue continuing into 21. And Signet's also had a, a double digit improvement. And I think uh, MasterCard also showed similar numbers. So it seems across the board that there's these pretty amazing numbers, you know, because you're used to jewelry as a category being relatively stagnant. It's been kind of low growth, not insignificant growth. And to see like big numbers is gratifying. And it's great, actually. One counter to this lovely story of optimism and good times that really interested me when I saw the news, but I'd really love to hear some of the nitty gritty details is about Alex and Annie and their, their bankruptcy. Yeah. So uh, Alex and Ani, which for a while was one of the biggest brands in the industry. It was valued at, uh, I think, over a billion dollars. There was talk of it going public. Pandora considered it a huge, huge threat. Just filed Chapter 11 and is going to reorganize. And its uh, problem was heavy bank debt. And the, the acting CEO cited three things. He said, macro trends driving customers away from brick and mortar retail, explosive growth in the early 2010s that resulted in certain operational challenges as the company's uh, infrastructure struggled to keep up with demand. So basically it grew too fast. Finally, significant turnover in management. And I mean, what's interesting about the story is it was based on the vision of one person, Caroline uh, Raphaelian, who for a while was also kind of had a billion dollar valuation, was considered a billionaire. And I think she's on the Forbes uh, richest self-made women. And she was the one who came up with the charms and the bangles. And she had a very uh, new agey kind of sensibility. And there's all these stories about how she would get like shamans to bless the store locations and the consult zodiacs. And, you know, there's a, I believe there was a, like an astrology on board of directors or something like that. And there's a spiritual healer who I guess a lot of the company employees were required to meet with this person or some of them were or and, and it wasn't just built by Carolyn. There was also Giovanni Ferrosi who became CEO and he was kind of given credit for taking it to the level that it got. And, you know, there were very interesting kind of contrast of personalities because Giovanni, he, you know, had a military background and ran everything with this kind of precise 
military efficiency. And yet the company was this very new agey kind of loose place. And I think you see this a lot in the industry is that when it can be like the vision of one person or two people, when they, they reach a certain threshold, and then when the finance people start to get involved, and when they start to try to professionalize themselves and go public, that's when a lot of the problems start. These are people who are generally very willful and do things are used to doing things their own way or not necessarily used to kind of the standard corporate uh, practices, it becomes a different world, a world more of numbers. You know, a lot, I think a lot of jewelry people not, aren't necessarily that focused on numbers, especially the kind of the creative designers. And when you have something that takes fire and is so big, and all of a sudden the, the, the bean counters get involved, there's a danger of it losing its soul. And there's also a danger of somebody who is a creative type who may not necessarily be suited to running a huge company like Carolyn did for a long time. And it also shows how these kind of noble things can get perverted because apparently all these employees or all the kind of high level employees had to meet with this spiritual healer. And some of them wondered if I open my guts to this person and this person works for the company, like, will this go in my HR file? It's a little odd in that way, you know? And they had for a long time this app, this Alex Anani app, and I downloaded it because I thought it was kind of cool. It had like a lot of cool sayings and proverbs and words of wisdom. And there was a whole Zodiac and I'm not necessarily into the Zodiac, but you know, it was something like I used to check in the newspaper. So now I had this on this app, right? So it was this cool app, but it turns out this app was actually very good at getting information about people by figuring out what people were into. It was able to kind of customer profile in a weird way that you wouldn't necessarily expect from like, hey, this is this nice little sweet, cool uh, Zodiac app. You know, I mean, you see this so much with sustainability. And I think in, in the case of Alex and Ani, this kind of new age philosophy is that like even things that are kind of noble and that people are really kind of believe sometimes when money gets involved, they get a little off track, perhaps. And you have two things that are kind of going at odds. I don't know if it's greed or just mismanagement or like you say early on, just explosive growth for a company that just wasn't prepared for it. Maybe all of the above. Where is Carolyn Raphaelian now? And and what, what do we expect to happen to the company and to its intellectual property and so on? The plan is for the company to be on sale, but the hedge fund is owed a lot of money. And I guess they, they bought out a lot of the banks. That's how they, that was part of the restructuring. So the asking price is probably going to be about a hundred million dollars. So I'm, I'm not sure people are going to necessarily pay that, even though this has great brand equity. I mean, you know, there's clear potential there and there's, you know, manufacturing facilities. I mean, there's a lot there. It's not clear if it's going to be able to make that. So right now it, the plan is there's a restructuring agreement and under the current agreement, what they're saying is that 65% is going to be owned by Lion Capital, which is a big kind of uh, London uh, hedge fund. The other 35%, and and this is kind of interesting, is going to be owned by Mark Garagos, who is a, a famous celebrity attorney. He was famous for doing Michael Jackson, but he also did like Jesse Smollett. He, 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 like, he keeps doing like famous people. Like it, it, it doesn't stop. He apparently became very close friends with Carolyn and they met at some fundraiser for an Armenian charity and uh, they hit it off. And they're both obviously extremely accomplished people. And he apparently got very involved in the business. 
and became kind of a controversial character around the office. If you read that medium piece, there's two executives that he fired, and this was his how he uh, he let them go. He he ended his email. Shame on you both, and good riddance. Which you know is not you know not like hey thank you. It's it's just a odd way of uh, handling it. He's going to own 35 percent of the company. Carolyn sold her share to him. But apparently, when I spoke to the Lion Capital guys, they don't think he's going to be very involved. Um, I mean, he is a minority shareholder. Apparently, Carolyn has a new venture that she's been trying to do for a long time. And I follow her on Instagram, and she's still talking about it. She's going to do her own thing, and we'll see if it's as big as her previous thing. I mean, so much of it was tied to her personality and her interests and, and what she was into that it'll be interesting to see where the brand goes. I think it still has potential. Pandora's been able to kind of write itself to some extent. You know, it's certainly possible Alex and Ani will too, but you could read that medium piece, which as you mentioned, was like a 40 minute read. We'll, we'll just have to see. I mean, it's a fascinating company. It's been a, been a fascinating success story. It definitely added a lot of excitement to the industry for at least a brief moment. Wow. It's like a few years ago, you just would not have seen that coming. They seem like they were just riding wave after wave of success. And it seems like their jewelry is sort of perfectly placed for these times. You know, it has that kind of sentiment and that, you know, just that new agey, everything's going to be all right vibe to it, which we all like to hear these days. Well, let me tell you about some I scratched the surface of recently that it's also kind of weird, but in a more exciting, thrilling, very futuristic kind of way. I did a trio of interviews for an article called What's Next for Watches that ran in the Times on June 19th. Basically, I interviewed three people, all of whom were had really different backgrounds. But the idea was to talk about what was coming for the watch industry and really, you know, in a greater sense, the world of retail at large. So the first person I spoke to was a, his name's Peter Noel Murray, and he's in principal of a New York-based research and consulting practice specializing in emotion and behavior change. So I'd found him once uh, about a year ago online because I wanted somebody to comment really about the consumer psyche. And so I returned to him for this piece and it was fascinating because what he does is he doesn't do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews in the way you might see a scientist or you know people doing clinical trials where they need numbers and numbers of people. He does very long conversations with people, usually at the behest of clients, which are often companies looking to understand how they should market or brand or position their goods to, to sort of hit that consumer sweet spot. And so obviously in the wake of the pandemic. He had a lot of deep conversations about how people are feeling and how they're feeling, especially about being consumers and what they need to feel good about the things they're purchasing. He really did talk a lot about the sense of uncertainty and vulnerability that people are still feeling, even though we're obviously getting back into the world and what we talked about earlier, there is this optimism and sense of celebration, but people are still, they need stability. And so for him, and based on the consumer conversations he's had, brands really need to be focusing in on how to convey a sense of stability and truth and timelessness, authenticity, all these things that are kind of antidotes to uncertainty and chaos. And it's a little hard to figure out exactly how you do that in practice. He really talked about it being kind of a general tone and a vibe. You know, he didn't give me the specific words, but the idea was that you wanted to convey to your customers and in the context of the watch business, 
it was, you know, a lot of the things that luxury has always done very well, which is, you know, we've been around since 1860 and we hand make all our products in this little factory up in, you know, the mountains of Switzerland and the Alps and emphasizing these ideals of timelessness. And again, you know, authenticity, what you offer and what you sell has always been this way, will always be this way. These crazy, variable, very vulnerable times won't affect the things we do and the things we put out. Also in the sense that if you're looking for places to put your money or places to at least feel good that where you're spending your money isn't frivolous, then our watches or for that matter, our jewels or any really luxury good, it's a worthwhile way to to invest your money, even if you're not really looking at it per se as an investment. It's always interesting to talk to somebody who does spend time looking at these things from the angle of psychology, because that's such a big part of how people shop. It's just not something we usually talk about or that we have particular insight into as editors. But of course, it rules us as people, as consumers, and it rules the people that shop at the retail stores that we write to and spend money on jewelry. And so that was just, you know, an interesting Um, insight that I found. In the same set of conversations, I spoke to somebody else named Scott Lachute, and he is president of research and strategy at a New York-based trend consultancy called PSFK. They kind of define themselves as near-term futurists. They're looking five, 10, probably 15 years down the line to see what's happening. And so much of what they've been talking about lately has been this omni-channel approach and how important it is for retailers at every part of the chain here to really embrace that idea of meeting your customers where they're at, whether that's on Instagram, whether that's live streaming, whether that's in the store, on a WhatsApp platform, whatever it is. He said that one of the next things they're looking at, and it's something that's coming out of the manufacturing space, it's called digital twins. And it's the idea that every product that's manufactured will have a digital version that sits online so that all the data is there. There's some sensor, I guess, embedded into the physical product that connects with this digital twin up in the cloud. And so if it's a watch, for example, that sensor may be able to say, hey, this watch is running, you know, three seconds fast per day. We've noticed there's some anomaly within the mechanism, whether that just needs more lubrication or a part has worn down. And it alerts the brand really and says, hey, let's contact the owner of this watch and let them know that they need to bring their watch in for a service. And the idea is it's proactive. So it tackles this problem before it really becomes a problem. When Scott and I were talking, he talked a lot about, I can see this being insanely valuable in the car space where, of course, nobody wants to have a blowout or some engine freak out. And so these sensors may be able to sense that before, alert you, take you into a repair center and really nip it in the bud. And that just sounded like such a wild and fascinating thing. And and yet also somehow plausible. And he basically said this is already happening on a bigger level and a larger scale in the manufacturing world where you have these big, and I imagine they're like big CNC machines and they've got all these parts working together and they are able through some form of AI that has that capability to sense anomalies, determine, wait, there's a little glitch in this particular machine. We have a clear sign where it is and what's happening and we can just go in and nip it in the bud. You know, I guess for watches and things that we deal with, that level of miniaturization and then having the platforms that are there to facilitate that AI interaction, that's probably another 15 to 20 years out. But I thought that was amazing, this idea that everything we own would have a digital twin. 
the other thing that was interesting was that as the pre-owned world becomes so big and as pre-owned watches, certainly pre-owned cars are there, but what a great thing for you to have this digital record of everything that's ever happened to this object you own, whether it's a car or a watch, it's all there. You can exactly know if it was tampered with, if the crystal was replaced because it's locked into, I imagine, some sort of blockchain. The future is here and it's freaking thrilling. It's interesting and it's hopefully it'll be a future without COVID. Vegas coming up so soon, it's absurd. It's going to be the most unusual Vegas show ever, but it could be a lot of fun. Counting on it. Take care. Stay healthy. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.